This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Coming up on today's show, of course, the Emergencies Act has been invoked in Canada. Should it have been? We'll speak with a lawyer and find out. Plus, what's the damage that's been done both economically and in terms of Canada's reputation. Two conversations on that. And more developments on the Ukraine border with Russia. What's happening there? Maybe things are getting a little bit better. So the Emergencies Act declared by the Prime Minister yesterday, which gives the uh, federal government uh, a lot more power. Uh, It's very extraordinary. It's never, in fact, happened before. The Act replaced the War Measures Act back in 1988. Uh, It's never been used before. So Um, it has a very high threshold that needs to be met in order for it to be brought into effect. And the question we're asking is, did we reach that threshold? A lot of people say, no, no, we certainly didn't. Let's chat with Aaron Solomon now, who's a chief legal analyst for Esquire Digital. Get his take on this situation. Aaron, thanks for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Shane, thanks not only for having me, but for the Van Halen lead-in. You like that, eh? <laughs> I loved it. Uh, let's start with the threshold. Have we met it? I mean, there's a lot of discussion and a lot of people saying that, you know what? To deploy some kind of action like this, it needs to be more than just some protests. We didn't get where we needed to get. Well, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association would agree. They said last night that they don't believe that we've cleared this high and clear, quote-unquote, threshold. Yeah. So they say that actually... We're not even close. Uh, That's their opinion. Now, the thing is, you know, look, I've been giving interviews all over the world, literally, since yesterday afternoon at around 4.45. I want to make a footnote for everybody. I'm Montreal-based. You guys are in Alberta. It's amazing how little the world knows about Canada, but they are putting a lot of attention on this invocation of the Emergencies Act. The next 30 days are really going to be important days in Canadian history for all of us. I think, you know, you make a good point, and I'm sure globally it's being reported and and it's being watched very closely in the United States. And we know the relationship between our two countries has been changing over the past several months. What does this do? The situation that we're in, the fact that we brought in this act, the borders were closed, what do you think that means to the Canada-U.S. relationship? So, you know, I follow American politics and law very closely because this is kind of what I do for a living. And I can tell Canadian listeners that the political landscape is going to change a lot in the United States in 2022 with the midterm elections. You know, people have been predicting a red wave, but it's going to actually be a red tsunami. So there are a lot of very sympathetic Americans to, you know, this kind of invocation of civil liberties that's been happening within Canada with the border protest and what's been happening within Ottawa. So I think that, ironically, the final analysis is going to be that Canadian and U.S. relations are going to be closer among the people from what's been happening over the past month, not necessarily because of government action. I think there are a lot of Americans who are very sympathetic, not necessarily with parking a whole bunch of trucks in downtown Ottawa, but the sentiment that we're all frustrated two years into a pandemic. 
And is the government always acting in our best interest? This is a question that's shared north and south of the border. Absolutely. No question. There's there's audiences for that discussion uh, all over the world, I would think. In fact, um, back in our country, bringing in the Emergency Act, uh, as they did yesterday, uh, the legal avenues that now become available to Trudeau, what changes? Uh, what do you expect to see the federal government? You know, a lot of it was focused on finances. Oh, it's the scariest heck. So the main thing that we need to think about is, is the government going to try to do anything under the guise of a 30-day Emergencies Act that's going to become a more lasting thing? So right. one of the things that the act allows them to do is to direct banks to regulate or prohibit the use of funds to fund blockades. So that's going to be things like, you know, the GoFundMes. Yep. But it's also going to be the disbursement of cryptocurrencies. And a lot of people believe that the government is doing this, so now they have FinTrack regulating crypto, and that's not going to change back in 30 days. Interesting. And that's big. I mean, that's sort of the whole point of the cryptocurrencies is to be unregulated. This is a big, big deal then. I know a lot of people in Toronto, which is, you know, really the Canadian hub for crypto, sure. who are saying, wait a second, you know, even if to do it for 30 days is going to be very challenging, because as you point out, the whole notion behind cryptocurrency is that it's decentralized. Yeah, totally. But if the government's actually saying no for, you know, public safety, for the safety of Canada, the integrity of Canada, we need to do more things like this is interesting. And by the way, a lot of people in places like Calgary, Edmonton, Montreal, and Toronto are are also going to be saying, wait a second, you guys could do this in like 24 hours. You could regulate what's happening with things like cryptocurrency. But with houses being unaffordable to the average Canadian, you haven't been able to track foreign investment and money laundering for decades? Yeah, money laundering is, is definitely a, a focus here. Yeah, I mean, all kinds of questions will be raised. What about charges? Like, what kind of charges do these protesters now face that they didn't prior to the announcement yesterday? What changed in terms of their level of risk? New fines and punishments, number one. Yeah. But number two is that Trudeau said yesterday afternoon, listen, you need to go home. Because if you don't go home, you could be sacrificing your registration for the vehicle, your insurance, the vehicle itself and corporate and personal accounts could be seized. You know, some of these big rigs are worth millions of dollars. It's not just the people that get on the news in their $80,000 SUVs who are going to potentially be in trouble here. So I think that if somebody actually does the risk-benefit analysis, a lot of people are going to give up on the convoy. It doesn't make financial sense not to do so. Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest weapon that was unveiled yesterday, right? I mean, all kinds of talk and all kinds of discussion, but that whole fact of you basically hand-stringing yourself for a long, long time and in a big way might be the one thing that convinces people that it's not worth it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have put attention on two fairly minor things. The first is directing, like, tow truck companies to yeah. render services paid by the government. Who cares? And the second thing is directing the RCMP and the OPP to enforce these measures. Well, listen, the Ottawa police haven't done a thing. So because the federal government is going to tell the OPP that's been very sympathetic so far to the convoy to do certain things is not the way for this to end quickly. It should end quickly voluntarily because people realize that the real penalties here are the financial ones. Will that work, though? I mean, do you think we've taken the step? Just the thought of it, the threat of it, is that going to be enough? Well, there are a lot of people who since last night have said, now I'm more dug in than ever yeah, to yeah. do this. But, you know, it's a question of personal property. I don't know a lot of people that can afford to lose a million dollars in a vehicle and lose their driver's license, especially if they're a trucker. So I think that even if this creates a fissure, if this creates a division, 
in people's willingness to keep up the convoy, that is really what the goal of invoking the Emergencies Act is. Yeah, exactly. And we'll watch and we'll see. Aaron, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us this morning. My pleasure, Shay. Thanks a lot. You too. That's Aaron Solomon, who is a chief legal analyst for Esquire Digital, walking us through what these changes with the Emergency Act mean. Border blockades have largely been resolved in our country. We know uh, what happened in Windsor, wrapped up on the weekend. Surrey wrapped up last night. Coot seems to be done as of this morning. But this didn't happen until they had caused major tie-ups and huge snarls in travel. You know the stories. Also affecting trade. Um, We'll talk about the economic impact a little bit later. Right now, though, the reputational damage on our country. What has happened in that regard? We're going to talk now with Edward Alden, who is a visiting professor of U.S.-Canada Economic Relations at Western Washington University, also the author of The Closing of the American Border, Terrorism, Immigration, and Security Since 9-11. Mr. Alden, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. It's great to be with you this morning. Thank you. And I think you made some really fascinating points here. When we take a look at this, you know, we've been dealing in this situation in Ottawa for a long, long time. And I said earlier this morning, you know, really, for people outside of Ottawa, it's kind of like, wow, that's crazy. But, I mean, it doesn't affect us. Who cares almost? I imagine it's the same sort of a viewpoint in the United States, right? Oh, boy, they've got a big situation in Ottawa. But once the borders get affected, everything changes, right? Yeah, I mean, that was was the turning point from the U.S. perspective. I think people down here had had pretty much ignored it. There was some enthusiasm uh, among the conservative media for what the what the Freedom Convoy was doing up there. But certainly in you know official Washington, D.C., nobody was paying attention, particularly until they shut the Ambassador Bridge. I'd like to say that, that Coots was the turning point, but it wasn't. That went no. on for a long time. It was only after the Ambassador Bridge was shut down that, that uh, you know, President gets on the phone to, to Prime Minister Trudeau. So that, that was the, the issue that brought the U.S. in. Um, what kind of pressure do you think was brought to bear? How involved did the U.S. get? I mean, like, they didn't want to get overly involved with what's going on in Ottawa for obvious reasons. It's not their problem. It's not their business. But uh, the border is. How much pressure do you think was put on our governments and our leaders by U.S. politicians? I mean, we don't entirely know at this yeah. point, but I think it had to have been significant. I mean, the Department of Homeland Security was in a public way offering unspecified help to Canada. I mean, you think about that. What does that mean, right? You're going to have American agents on the Canadian side of the border helping to clear the roadways. It was never clear what that meant. And the fact that, that um, you know, President Biden in the middle of, you know, the biggest uh, security crisis in Europe in 75 years has to get on the phone with Prime Minister Trudeau to talk about this. He could not have been pleased with that. I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation. Like, what are you guys doing north of the border? We've got a crisis in Europe. Can you please get this sorted out and quit wasting my time? We laugh about it, but I think, I mean, it, it just in terms of the the thinking and, and the reaction and the frustration that must have been felt on that side of the border, how damaging do you think overall it really is to our reputation as a trading partner with the United States? I mean, I think, you know, it passes to some extent because, you know, as you noted, the, the borders seem to be clearing yeah. up now. I think trade will start flowing again. The problem is, you know, you've got a moment down here in the United States in which the economic nationalists have the upper hand. Yes. And this is not just, you know, the Trump Republicans. This is in the Democratic Party, right? I mean, Joe Biden is the most pro-union, pro-buy-American president we've had in this country in decades. 
And there are a lot of people in the Biden administration that would be happy to look for excuses, for example, to try to cut Canadian parts producers out of the vehicle chain, right? They want to they want to reshore production. They want to offer subsidies to buyers of electric vehicles, provided they're made in the United States, i.e. not in Canada or Mexico. So that's just problematic. No, we lost our guest, Edward Alden. Um, I want to continue that conversation now. So I'm sure Sarah will track him down. In the meantime, we'll take a quick break. We'll get that out of the way, and then we'll chat with uh, Edward when we come back, hopefully. All right. Let's get back to our conversation. We're talking with uh, Edward Alden, who is a visiting professor of U.S.-Canada Economic Relations at Western Washington University, also the author of The Closing of the American Border, Terrorism, Immigration, and Security Since 9-11. Uh, Edward, glad we got you back. I appreciate it. Um, let's start... Yeah, apologies. No, no, no problem at all. Uh, we were talking about um, the situation we have where, you know, as you mentioned, this comes at a really bad time because the U.S. is definitely focused inward and has been for a while. That seems to be a focus, especially economically, and, you know, it's America first, and, and that's the policy. I, I think that's correct, and, and, you know, it's true in both parties. It takes a different form, but, you know, there are, there are a whole bunch of events that have gone into this. I mean, some of this is a reaction to the COVID, some of it's a reaction to the loss of manufacturing jobs in the face of Chinese competition. Yeah. But you have here in the United States politicians who are looking for excuses to use the tools of government to reshore industry, to bring manufacturing back to the United States. And, you know, there's some people who say, yeah, we should include our friends. That's got to include Canada. That's got to include Mexico. There are others who are saying, no, we really need to keep it at home. And that's the danger of these kind of border shutdowns. It becomes a talking point for the nationalists who say, look, we can't even rely on the Canadians. They can't control their own country. They've got these border shutdowns. We really do need to bring this stuff home. That's the danger. Yeah, and you take, I mean, and it's not just on the continent. When you take a look at what's going on right now, we know China is really, really sort of the dominant figure in a lot of these discussions, especially for Canadians too. Um, But when you're taking a look at supply chains being stressed all over the world and you're trying to figure out what your best way to go is as a country, who are you going to partner up with? Who are you going to work with? This doesn't help in that regard either. And no, it doesn't. And I think, you know, from the Canadian perspective, I, I, Canada's in a really difficult position, right? Because you endured four years of President Trump. You know, a lot of us down here didn't like him much either. But he took some real shots at Canada. And I think, you know, the logical response from Canada that is, well, we'll go look for other friends. You know, we'll look to Asia. We'll look yeah. to Europe. Well, you look to Asia, you got to deal with the Chinese who are dominating that region more and more. China and Canada have been at loggerheads ever since the, the arrest of Meng Wanzhou, the the CFO of Huawei. Um, Europe's a long way away, doesn't really substitute. So at the end of the day, I think Canada's got no choice but to double down on its economic relationship with the United States. But politically, that's not that comfortable in Canada either. I mean, Canada's also in a nationalist moment in response because of the way the U.S. bungled the COVID response, right? I mean, you know, who in Canada wants to say, oh, yeah, we should get closer to those Americans. They did such a great job during COVID. So you've got problems on both sides of the border. Well, you know what? And the border itself is a problem. If you take a look at it, Edward, I mean, what's going on right now? We've got part of the problem, and the amazing thing about these convoys and these protests is the fact that they couldn't cross, that the tipping point was... The truckers can't cross into the U.S. border unless they're vaccinated. Well, even if it was lifted here, the U.S. still has the same policy there. The the testing doesn't match. I mean, they can't seem to get on the same page when it comes to anything regarding the border right now. It used to be a lot more uniform, smooth. Not anymore. 
I've been really shocked by this. I mean, in the, in my book that you were nice enough to mention in uh, at the beginning, you know, I, I have a whole chapter about the very extensive, deep U.S.-Canadian cooperation after 9-11 yeah. to try to deal with the mutual threat of terrorism but keep that border open. During COVID, we saw none of that. I mean, wild differences in the regulations. The biggest one for me being the fact that Canadians vaccinated or otherwise throughout the pandemic could fly down to the United States, right? Yeah. Couldn't cross the land border. Couldn't drive. Couldn't drive across <laughs> <laughs> but if you got on an airplane in Calgary, you could fly to Houston. Like, what was that about, right? I mean, that, that kind of thing just made no sense. And the two governments never coordinated their efforts. And I think, you know, that's led to some of the cynicism about government, the, the, the Freedom Convoy, for all of its problems. I, I think expresses some of that frustration. Like, where is the logic here? in the way governments have been behaving during this crisis. So as a guy who studies U.S.-Canada relations, specifically around economics, what's going on? What is the state of affairs right now? Like you say, there's the cooperation doesn't seem to be what it has been historically. What is the relationship right now? You know, it's obviously a lot better than it was when Trump was in office, but... but... <laughs> You know, the, the liberal governments of the world, small L for, for want of a better term, are just running scared, right? They, they've lost the courage of their convictions, right? People don't believe the way they did 15 or 20 years ago in the virtues of globalization and open international trade, right? We went through this golden age of travel where you could jump on a plane and fly anywhere in the world. Suddenly, I think people in Canada and the United States, Europe, elsewhere are looking much more at the sort of downsides of, of globalization and free trade and, and easy movement. And the governments that, that are in favor of those things, including, you know, the, the Trudeau government, I think largely the Biden government here, are just on the defensive, right? Yeah. They, don't, they don't have a good case to make anymore. And so they're kind of burying their heads in the sand and saying, well, we'll, we'll try to do nationalism light. <laughs> and hopefully that'll stave off the real crazies, right? And um, that's just the political moment we're in now. Yeah, it, the politics are just crazy. Edward, great insight, uh, great conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Great to be with you. Thanks for your patience on the phone, Trouble. Oh, no problem at all. It happens. Thank you, sir. That is uh, Edward Alden, who's a visiting professor of U.S.-Canada Economic Relations at Western Washington University and the author of The Closing of the American Border, Terrorism, Immigration, and Security. Since nine eleven, and I don't think there's any doubt. You just you, you take a look at the situation, and um, you know, like he, you, the list of things where you look at it and say, "This doesn't make any sense." What's going on? It's long. We all know that, and it's been it's been an issue throughout this pandemic. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Damn it. All right, continuing our discussion around the border, borders, I guess, um, uh, the latest, uh, just hearing in the news, it uh, looks like the Coot situation has been resolved. Uh, most of the people left uh, over the course of the past 24 hours, and the remainder, those who uh, stayed overnight and into this morning, left at about 10 o'clock. There was a convoy that sort of left. So traffic resumed at Coots. Uh, as you know, traffic resumed in Windsor uh, over the weekend. There were on and off tie-ups at the border crossing in Surrey, B.C. That was dealt with last night. RCMP moved in and made a number of arrests, the people who wouldn't leave. They went in and said, hey, listen, guys, this is over. 
you can leave or you can be arrested. Most people left. There was 50 or 60. Most of them said, okay, we'll leave. Uh, 10 or 12 didn't, and they were arrested. So traffic flowing freely in Surrey, Coots, Windsor. Looks like things are back on track. But now what remains to be done is to total up the damage. What's this going to cost us? Because you can't shut down borders like that for as long as we did. Uh, and not have it cause major implications in our supply chains and our economy and all the rest of that stuff. So uh, it's going to cost all of us. That's the bottom line. So let's get some details on just how much it might and in what areas. We're going to chat with Moshe Lander, who's an economist and our senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. Uh, Mr. Lander, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. So we're talking about two of the busiest crossings, in fact, one of them for sure, the busiest crossing in North America being shut down for as long as it was. There will be a financial price to pay for all of this, right? For sure. Uh, the, the Ambassador Bridge, which connects Windsor and Detroit, probably does give or take around a billion dollars worth of goods passing across the border each day. Wow. So for each day that that's closed, you know, just multiply a billion dollars times that amount. And, and beyond that, it's integrating the American auto industry with the Canadian auto industry, which exists on a highway that runs basically continuously from Windsor all the way up to the Quebec border near Cornwall. So it's not just the, the goods themselves, but it's the lost business that you really can't make back, right? Yeah, we saw that a number of automotive plants either scaling back the number of shifts or closing altogether. How does that work? I mean, is it Ford on one side does this and then they need the part from Ford on the other side to complete? The, I mean, how does that all get integrated? Yeah, that, that's exactly it. So, you know, one factory will start producing a certain part of the components, and then they'll pass it across the, the bridge onto the Detroit side. And then in the factories in and around Michigan, they'll develop it further and send it back. And so it can pass the border multiple times okay. in creating the ultimate final product. Even if you have one factory that's making the entire car from beginning to end, there still is that uh, parts that are going to be fed into that production process. So even if it's not like a half-finished chassis, the fact is that they're going to need a continuous supply of parts that might be coming from part suppliers down even into Ohio. And so when the borders closed, those cars just sit there unfinished uh, and, and unable to go further. Eventually they get made, yeah. but it just delays all of the subsequent production that would have been done in that time. Makes perfect sense. Okay. What other goods uh, might we see be affected here? I mean, what are some of the major players coming across that border? So uh, across there, you're talking about a lot of the manufacturers, right? Because Ontario really is the heart of Canada's manufacturing sector. And so any of those factories that are relying on parts coming up through the U.S., and that itself might be parts that are coming from China, mm-hmm. but maybe are shipped to, say, Los Angeles and then, uh, you know, trucked across the country. Those are going to be affected. The, the Coots border and, and the, the western side of the borders, uh, they're going to be dealing in more, say, uh, agricultural products. They're going to be dealing in, of course, cattle and uh, meat products and, and a lot of, uh, you know, perishable goods that aren't going to be able to last particularly long because they can't be stored. Yeah, I mean, with Coots being closed as long as it was, and I, I don't know if what the situation was, but some of those perishables, livestock things that you're talking about, if those were lost uh, as these trucks had to divert to other locations or had to sit and wait, I mean, that money will have to be made up. Is that a factor here? Yeah, um, you know, that that's going to hit the profits of, you know, say your grocery stores, right? So Safeway is going to say, look, it's not just because we didn't get this shipment. You as a consumer can double up this week and just buy two of them, right? Yeah. So if those perishable goods didn't come across, then they're gone. And, and so that's going to either reduce their profits, which is one option, or if they want to maintain their profits, they're going to try and pass across some of that lost revenue 
by increasing prices on existing products that are either on the shelves or subsequently on the shelves, which could trigger even higher inflation than we've been seeing in the last year. Well, that's the thing. I mean, we're at a time where we don't have a lot of margin here. I mean, inflation is higher than it's been in decades. We know the supply chain's been an issue. This really did hit at the worst possible time, you know, in terms of economics. It is. It's the perfect confluence of like three bad events all occurring at the same time. COVID continues into, I guess now it's third year uh, of causing problems. And of course, in Alberta, you know, remember a few weeks back, the minus 40, minus 50 days that's causing disruption. BC saw flooding that wiped out some of their highways and infrastructure. Uh, And so, you know, that's also causing problems. And then just generally across the world, we're constantly hearing about supply chain issues. And so getting goods from the factory floor in China onto shelves in Canadian stores is itself a problem. Uh, And so those three are all working together to jack up prices for whatever does make it to the shelf. So in regards to this incident in particular, the border situation that we've been dealing with in our country, what's the, uh, the timeline on how long that kind of impact takes to be absorbed and to get back to normal? How long will it, it affect things? So the immediate impact is going to be seen probably within the next 30 days, right? So uh, we're going to see in March the February inflation numbers, and there's going to be a jump, right? The, the fact is that those protests in just last 24 hours, so a week is yeah. long enough in economics to do some damage. Uh, it's really then just a matter of how fast can we get back to something resembling normal, right? So even though you've gotten rid of the protesters and they've been pushed away from the border, that doesn't necessarily mean that the border is now fully open again. Uh, You know, I'm sure there's going to be some hesitancy on both sides of the border in terms of allowing trucks back into the country that you have to be a little more... um, vigilant in checking to make sure that this isn't the start of some subsequent protest. And so that type of gumming things up could now drift into the spring and maybe into the summer, depending on how fast people kind of calm down and say, all right, that was a one-off, yeah. as opposed to this is the beginning of something more more regular. So when we take a look at what might happen and what we can expect to see, we already know interest rate hikes are fully expected. I mean, we've basically been told as much by the Bank of Canada. How does this change the way that governments and the bank, central banks respond to the situation that we're dealing with? So the Bank of Canada is committed to keeping inflation at 1% to 3% a year. And, and we've been above that for some time now. But the Bank of Canada has been kind of holding off increasing interest rates because they wanted to see in part the, the supply chains kind of correct themselves. And if the inflation rate doesn't go substantially above three, they're willing to look the other way just to kind of help keep the economy humming. Uh, they've been pushing back that interest rate hike for over a year now, but I, I think it's at the point where they say it's just too high and it's too damaging that we can't let it go any longer. And yeah. so those rate hikes are probably going to come pretty fast and furious in a series of, say, four out of the next five meetings uh, four out of the next six meetings. So you could easily find by the fall, interest rates are a full one percentage point higher than they are now. Wow. Okay. That's significant. It is, especially when we're talking about the key overnight rate that the, the Bank of Canada controls is at 0.25%. Yeah. So jacking it up to 1.25 is pretty substantial. Now, by historical standards, it's not high at all. But given what we've gotten used to after the last five years, even, uh, that, that's a big increase coming in a very short amount of time. Yeah, definitely is. Uh, Moshe, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Anytime. That is Moshe Lander, who is an economist and a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. Um, meanwhile, the other story that we're keeping an eye on, and this is an interesting one, and we're going to get some insight onto what might be going on here. Today, Russia has announced that some of the military units that had caused so much concern in uh, Eastern Europe 
were returning to their bases. They'd completed their exercises near Ukraine. So uh, we don't know how many are being withdrawn, how far they're being withdrawn, how it affects the buildup of over 100,000 Russian troops in the region. But um, it seems to be the opposite of what we've heard over the past several days, which is the march to war and an attack is imminent and possibly as early as Wednesday. So let's get some details. We're going to chat with Marta Ditchuk, who is an associate professor in political science and history in Western's Faculty of Social Science. Uh, Marta, thanks for joining us again. Good to chat. Oh, thanks for having me. Okay, so what's going on? What's this latest news uh, from Putin and Russia saying, hey, we're going to pull back. We're going to... I mean, what's happening? What, what's your assessment? Well, as you said, the announcement came that Russia is pulling back its troops, and also Russian president is talking with the German chancellor. So those are the big picture stories. What in fact is happening, we don't really know, because Ukrainian sources are saying we don't actually know that they've withdrawn their troops. They could simply be moving them and leaving the equipment behind, which would allow them to uh, be back there very quickly. So this looks like just another tactic on the side of Russia. The key thing to watch here, though, is what's happening in the diplomatic talks. And everybody's interested in a diplomatic solution. First of all, Ukraine, Mm -hmm. but everybody else as well. But the question is, what is being discussed and what sort of terms are going to be proposed? And here the devil is in the details. Because the basis of this, and let's not forget the two the two countries that are being very active now in diplomacy, are France and Germany. Yes, and these are the two countries that were involved in creating the framework for peace called the Minsk Agreements back in 2014 and 2015, and those agreements have failed, and yet they're still being used as the basis for the current talks by the same two countries. Okay, give us a a, a Coles Notes version of the Minsk agreements and how they failed. Yes. um, When Russia launched this undeclared hybrid war against Ukraine, um, Ukraine was on the receiving end. And so they were very interested in negotiating, first of all, a ceasefire and then an end to the conflict. Russia's narrative from the beginning and to the present is that Russia is not involved in this conflict that this is a civil war crisis in Ukraine, whereas, in fact, they're the ones that triggered the war and the ones that are supplying the armaments and so on today. So that's the first part, that they presented themselves as a mediator in this conflict um, that is between Ukrainians, which is a false narrative. Okay. And... What they are now trying to push through, and the the agreements are ambiguous because they were signed, you know, at the barrel of a gun. Ukraine was basically forced to sign certain things, which they did. Um, And then they went for a second round. And the key question is, what's going to happen to those territories that are currently occupied by not that Ukraine doesn't control? So Russia says these are independent republics. And Ukraine says, this is our territory that you have taken. And interestingly, Russia's parliament today tabled a a law to declare those two regions independent republics, which would give them some sort of right to participate in the negotiations. Because what Russia wants is they want elections in those areas that they now control, and those elections would give them an instrument 
to influence Ukrainian politics. And Ukraine is saying we're not going to have elections until there is a complete withdrawal of troops by both sides, and then international observers go in and then have an election. And Russia is saying, no, we have to have an election now, and then we will de-escalate. What is the action? What is your assessment of what the situation really is? I mean, we keep hearing, you know, some people in the West saying, oh, they're going to attack on Wednesday. I mean, they're being that definitive. And then you hear from some Ukrainian officials saying, nah, we're not there. I don't think this is going to. I mean, what is your assessment of how how close we are to an actual conflict kicking off? Well, as I said before, we don't really know. The only person who knows is Putin because he's the one who's going to take the decision either to attack or withdraw. The intelligence that Americans and other countries are working with, we don't see that either. So all we have to work with is their statements. Yeah. And uh, Ukraine also has their intelligence. And what the Ukrainian position, as you pointed out, has been not always in step with what the American intelligence is saying. So it's really hard to figure out what is actually going on. Yeah, and I guess we have to wait and see, and unfortunately that's not a a situation any of us want to be in. Well, the good news is it appears that the tensions have dropped somewhat. Today. Today. Yeah. And being in contact with my colleagues in Ukraine, that is a huge relief. Because people have been extremely nervous uh, because they're hearing these reports that you're going to be attacked on Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. And people like my former PhD student, he has a two-year-old baby, and he's thinking, how am I going to get my baby out of here? Jeez. Um, so that tension today has lessened. But what will happen tomorrow? We'll just have to wait and yeah, see. Nobody knows. This is not over. And um, I think it's in Putin's interest to prolong this, to make Ukrainians stressed and tense. And, also, and that also has a very negative impact on the economy, which Ukraine is already feeling. So his ultimate goal is to make Ukraine a failed state so he can reassert control over it one way or another. And economic disruption is one instrument for achieving that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Boy, what a situation. Uh, Marta, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us and giving us some insight and some clarity. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, we'll chat again. That okay, is, that is uh, Marta Ditchuk, who is an associate professor in political science and history at Western's Faculty of Social Science. And as she said, there is some good news or uh, the glimmer of some good news, possibly, uh, and uh, at least an easing intention, but it's certainly not an end by any stretch of the imagination. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.